Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. For Tuesday, May 17th, we come off uh, an evening which saw our lone and last debate uh, for the Ontario party leaders uh, to try and get elected on June 2nd. So we dive into that, who looked good, who said what, uh, and the developments there. We talked to Steve Pakin, the moderator, or one of the two, Althea Raj was with him, of one of uh, one of the two that handled the debate, uh, in essence. We talked to Mike Layton about getting washrooms open in the city, in parks. He's been trying to do it year-round for some time, but they've met some resistance from other councillors and uh, as well for financial reasons. So we go there as well. Lots coming up on Toronto Today, which starts now. Watch the debate last night. You probably did as well. Uh, we'll take your text all morning long on what you thought of it. Get some phone calls in a little bit later. I thought it was entertaining. I did. I uh, I know I'm a little bit of a, a, a political uh, geek for that stuff. I like it. I like debates. I like, uh, I like when... You know, leagues reveal schedules, something just if it appeals to me, it appeals to me and I'll always watch. I don't know that I need another one and I and there isn't going to be another one. So uh, we're stuck with what we've got. And the election is a mere, which is very, very hard to believe, a mere 16 days away, 16 days. And then you decide who the next premier is for the next four years. And you decide also if it's a majority government or a minority government. And some of those poll numbers coming up uh, in a little bit. There was no decisive blow last night. There was no topic that I thought just overwhelmed the proceedings. There were things I thought there needs to be a lot more of this and there needs to be a lot less of that. I didn't need to hear more about license plate stickers. That's about the 129th most important thing to a voter is the license plate sticker. They're going to bring them back. They won't bring them back. I'm taking them away again. I'm going to send you $300 more. Those aren't actual quotes, but you know what I'm saying. There are a lot bigger issues than whether or not you got a $300 refund check for your sticker. That said, the premier knows what his, uh, what his points are. The premier knows he's ahead on points and he doesn't need to, you know, stalk around the ring and, uh, and land knockout blows or even land hard punches. Just survive, move on. That's all there is to it. That's all Doug Ford attempted to do last night. And um, and I think he had that relatability that maybe, just maybe, is a struggle. Is a struggle for Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath. Um, Mike Schreiner going to talk about uh, in a minute or two. Here's my other observation before we hear some of the debate last night. Um, this is a uh, post-COVID universe we're living in right now. It is. I don't know what more you, what more evidence you would need to see. We said on the show certainly about a month ago, we're like, let's do a lot less COVID on the show. A lot of a lot of the COVID we were doing on the show was about moving on from COVID. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, what if there's a scary new variant? Let's get a doctor on to tell us what that scary new variant might be. Oh my heavens, the masks are coming off, everybody. What do we do? And uh, as you've seen, as you've seen on a pretty consistent basis, when chaos is predicted, it tends not to come true. We're, we're going to change the quarantine. We're going we're to reframe what Omicron is. We can't do that. If you change the quarantine to five days from 10 days, chaos will, dogs and cats living together. Didn't happen. Um, wait a minute. You're going to let kids decide whether to wear a mask or not in school after 26 months? The catastrophe that will transpire. It also didn't happen. Oh, I know. I know. I know. 
Oh, well, getting on a plane in the United States, the travel industry, people will cancel their flights. There'll be fights on the plane. There'll be scrap. Nothing really happened. If anything, the planes are telling you that less cancellations are happening. Bookings are up despite a terrible economy, despite a terrible bout with inflation right now that will soon affect airline uh, and, and air, airplane prices. You know that this is true. But uh, everybody's stayed pretty calm. So I think we decided, oh, you're wrong about this, wrong about that, wrong about the other thing. We're going to stop listening. And apparently somewhere along the line, Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, despite Del Duca's vaccination policy where he wants to force vaccinate five-year-olds in order for them to be able to attend school. Um, besides that, <laughs> that small issue of liberty. And he brought up liberty last night and he was right to bring it up in the context he brought it up. This was a post-pandemic election debate. Is over. It's over. COVID's here. COVID is not over. Hashtag COVID is not over. But you saw leaders that know that nothing they suggest in terms of restrictions, nothing they suggest in terms of uh, the public health realm, realm is going to land with a voter right now. It isn't. Okay? Things can always change. We can be ready to pivot. I'm ready to pivot. You're ready to pivot. But it is absolutely finished and uh, for some of the people that wanted to propel this into summer and into fall and keep you on in a constant state of panic and alarm um they know that they're homer simpson backing into the shrubs right now and they know that they are they know that they are and, and we won't play too much there's there's three minutes of i told you so um it'd be it'd be rewarding to do three hours but we got bigger things to do Doug Ford last night, I thought, landed a bit of a shot on Andrea Horvath, and I'm not sure that she responded in kind. Doug Ford said, I've got union support. And I looked it up last night. He does. Every union he mentioned has Doug Ford backing him because people were worried that work wouldn't begin again, that perhaps some of the lockdowns that have happened would spring up again. Ford made this point to the NDP leader last night. You know, Mr. Ms. Horvath, for years, the, 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 the union supported you. Well, guess what? The Boilermakers don't support you. Leona do, doesn't support you any anymore. And the electrical uh, workers don't support you. You've lost touch. You're out of touch with the hardworking <laughs> men and women. I think you need to this, look in the in mirror, Mr. Ford. When, 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 when the trade unions are supporting us for the first time, they know we're going to get it done okay, well, and we're going to spend money on infrastructure. That's why they're supporting us. They don't believe in you any longer. Thanks like Thanksgiving dinner at the Brady house. Enough of that. Um, my dad's quieter than he used to be. I'll put it that way. Uh, stopping drinking is beneficial, actually. Uh, I, and I, I would know. Doug Ford and the Ontario PCs do have that endorsement from the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers. I, I think there's an element of the get it done that is connecting with people in the skilled trades. There's an element of investment. What we can't call this conservative government is one of austerity. They are not cutting and reducing things that are seen as infrastructure for the province. They've obviously got a fat budget that was, remember this, four weeks ago, very difficult for Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca to be critical of. Very difficult. Let me pump Mike Schreiner up and put him in that number two spot uh, in the batting order. Doug Ford did make the point about nurses. They want to work in newer hospitals well i bet you that is true but he made the point and I, I i make this very very obvious as well with uh with bill 124 with how frustrated people in the healthcare industry have been uh there's a lot about how nurses feel it it caps wages it's almost a uh it's a regressive tax almost 
on nurses. And Mike Schreiner made the point that Doug Ford, who just called Andrea Horvath out of touch, might not be in touch with your average ground floor healthcare worker. Here's this. Mr. Ford, have you talked to a nurse lately? Have you talked to a nurse about how disrespected they feel, how overworked and underpaid and underappreciated they are, how insulted they feel being called heroes and then essentially having their wages cut by having them frozen? Mr. Ford, if you want to build capacity in our healthcare system, you have to make sure you invest in the people who deliver that care. And nurses are the backbone. They deserve to have Bill 124 gone. They deserve to have the opportunity to negotiate fair wages and fair benefits. You know, even their mental health care benefits were frozen because their entire benefit package was frozen. He's got all that right. And it's understandable why we've got a nurse shortage and why we need to actually, I will say this, press nurses unions to allow international nurses to work. Andrea Horvath did make a great point last night talking about it. She got it confused at first uh, with a nurse that lives in Fort Erie, travels to Buffalo, New York, and works in the United States as a doctor. This is a doctor, someone who's been trained to be a physician in another country. There's too many of those stories where we have not allowed international qualifications to fit into Ontario qualifications. And it's a massive problem. And it was clearly happening before the Ford government took over. So I can't lay it all. This all hasn't been a three and a half year, four year uh, transgression. This was happening for years and years. And if you're going to fix health care, Get qualified people in who are ready to work and pay them as you properly should. Mike Schreiner is going to be important, by the way, I think, to Ontario politics for years to come. I don't know that the Greens will get a second seat, uh, let alone a third, but he proved last night he belongs in Ontario politics, and it's more valuable to have him there than not. Stephen Del Duca dug in properly on the public education record for Doug Ford, and I would say pre pre-pandemic, these were fair things. Now, Ford was able to counter back and say, you guys had 15 years. Kathleen Wynne, Dalton McGinty, you're right there. A lot of cuts to education coming off the Mike Harris and Ernie Eves governments where there are even more cuts. A lot of dilapidated schools, but Del Duca landed this and this one stuck. There is perhaps no other place where Mr. Ford's record has been more appalling than in publicly funded education. This has not been This is not some sort of script that he's reading that someone else wrote for him. This hits my household directly because my daughters attend publicly funded schools in our home community. The Ontario Liberal plan will bring back an optional grade 13. We're going to shrink class sizes to 20 for elementary and secondary, hiring 10,000 new teachers to make that happen. We are going to cancel Highway 413, as we said, from day one. We're going to invest that in repairing and building new schools. Wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world to Doug Ford to counter back and say, where are you finding the 10,000 teachers and how qualified will they be? Those would have been fair questions. Somehow and some way, the biggest issue I've got with the Del Duca platform, forcing 5 to 11-year-olds and 12 to 17-year-olds to be vaccinated to go to school, I don't know where that was. There's only 35% of 5 to 11-year-olds in the province vaccinated. That campaign has stalled completely and utterly. Most of those kids have got Omicron in the last five months. There's no need to get vaccinated soon. And in some cases, it's a safety issue for them not to consider getting a second or third shot. It is that.
Andrea Horvath had this uh, to finish up our audio for this segment anyway. We'll talk to Steve Pakin, of course, at 8.20 by denoting something obvious that the conservatives really fell down on uh, with Minister McLeod and the former minister slash monster of long-term care, Marilee Fullerton. The autism file has been a disaster for the Ford government. I don't know how, I don't know how somebody does this, but this government promised they were going to help kids uh, with autism and then pulled the rug out from under those families and doubled the wait list. We need resources in our schools. We need supports for our kids. And that will help us uh, to uh, to ensure that our classrooms are safe uh, and that uh, they're safe workplaces also for education workers. Okay. And right now, when we see vote projections, it looks like only two of 40, it was 40 and a half percent of uh, Ontarians voted for the Ford government last time around. They have had their flaws. They have had their benefits. They have their pros. They have their cons. But right now, it looks like one of 20 voters from the 2018 election will decide to vote for somebody else. I want you to think about that number as your uh, breakfast settles this morning. 19 of the 20 people that voted for Doug Ford in 2018, they're going to vote for him again. Despite the best efforts of the other parties, despite many missteps during the pandemic, many missteps involving health care and education. I don't know what that says, but the people always speak and they're rarely wrong. They're rarely wrong putting the government in. People get the government they deserve at the end of the day. Our next guest did a phenomenal job. He, he asked great questions. Sometimes it's a weird thing how this works out with politicians. They didn't answer the question directly. Here's a sample. Do any of you feel any obligation to be more prudent in your spending plans? Andrea Horvath, you get to go first. I stand with everyday people before elections, during elections, and after elections, and I will continue to do that. Thanks, Ms. Horvath. Doug Ford, your turn now. Well, unlike the other, other three parties, I'm a strong believer in putting money back into people's pockets. Mike Schreiner, you're up next. The COVID pandemic revealed the cracks in the foundation of Ontario. Okay, Mr. Del Duca, you're up next. The Ontario Liberal plan that we put out a number of days ago is fully costed. This was uh, uh, not the easiest uh, assignment ever, and I thought he was brilliant last night, along with Althea Raj, host of the Agenda on TVO. We're obviously big fans here. Uh, Steve Pakin. Those those four people are lucky they're not in a university class. They didn't exactly uh, write down the proper answer, but uh, a little bit a little bit of ice skating around uh, that question and a few others, Steve. Well, it does remind me, Greg, that, um, you know, it's called question period. It's not called question and answer period. So, you know, one asks the questions and crosses one's fingers and hopes for the best. That's right. There were no Bibles on site. No one swore. No one held their hand in the air. Uh, no testimony. Steve Pakins, our guest from The Agenda, which you can watch 8 and 11 o'clock uh, tonight. Uh, what's that like for you in terms of the preparation? Take us in there a little bit. Or are you going this, you know, there, there's obviously questions you want to ask to all four at once, but I, I really enjoyed the one-on-one segments. I thought that was missing a lot from a couple of our, of our English language federal debates last fall, which just devolved into a lot of shouting and screaming and, and chaos. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but that was the one thing that Althea Raj and I wanted to avoid. And that was uh, a lot of peacocking for the cameras. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, too much crosstalk and shouting at one another. And, and beyond that, uh, only 30 second answers. And that was it. It seemed that the federal leaders debate during the last federal election just never really got going because uh, anytime anybody started uh, to get into a good conversation, the time was cut off. So we hope we had a format last night that allowed the leaders to to say both those short, punchy sentences, plus some one on one debate, plus some four on one debate. And 
I don't know if there's such a thing as a, as a best format for a leader's debate, but I hope we got kind of close to it last night. I, I, I think you did. We're, we're in that weird situation. You and I have talked about the history of elections before. I know you love digging into the, the, the data of, of some prior results where it's I, I think we're looking at uh, a real difficulty for both Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca. And they and they really maybe they made strides last night in separating themselves from the other. If someone says, I want to vote for Doug Ford again or for the first time, there's not much anybody can do. But if I want an alternative, which one should I pick? And and that's clearly uh, some polling I see and you see. That's been a struggle, and that's only benefiting um, the, the the Ford government. I did, did you think that was a calculated decision for Horvath and Del Duca to try and dig in on each other a little bit and say, this is why I'm different? Well, that is part of the dynamic that's happening in that kind of a debate. I mean, to be sure, Doug Ford is the target, and all three other leaders wanted to go after Doug Ford. But they also have this simultaneous mission, which is to say, now, if it can't be him, you know, if it's not going to be him and it is going to be us as, as the second place party, uh, who's it going to be? And we know it's not going to be Mike Schreiner. He's already admitted as such. And so it is this fight for second. So Doug Ford's got one mission, survive, right? And he did that. He got through it. But Horvath and Del Duca have a different mission. They not only have to try to take Ford down, they also have to try to take each other down as the logical alternative. So you're right, it's very complicated. I don't necessarily trust my, I don't necessarily trust my takeaway on these things, Greg, because a, a, a leader's debate is a television experience. And um, I didn't watch it on television. You know, I was 10 feet away from them. <laughs> so I'm experiencing it in a completely different way from the millions of other people who are watching the thing. So I'm very much interested in what other people had to say, and I don't necessarily trust my in-the-room uh, feelings about the whole thing because, of course, I didn't experience it like anybody else did. No, you're right. And and when you're in sort of that tunnel vision, I know I'm sure you've had television broadcasts and, and shows and uh, you're like, mm, I thought that was a little flat. And they're like, that was one of your best in weeks and vice versa. <laughs> you're like, I just was amazing tonight. And they're like, ah, just kind of like I'm sure athletes feel the same way. It's like it, it looks like somebody had a, had a great game uh, as, as a Toronto Maple Leaf. And they're like, no, that's that's the worst I've played in three weeks. But we don't know that they feel that way until until yeah. they get off the ice. Quite true. And, and I mean, the one thing that I think I did feel while I was in there last night is, and that was my eighth leaders debate. So I have something to compare it to. I walked out of there last night thinking, my goodness, you know, all four of them did really well. Mm -hmm. I didn't walk out of there thinking, holy smokes, this person clearly bested that person. And this person was terrible. And this person was fantastic. I thought they all went in there, obviously, with a, with a mission they wanted to accomplish. And for the most part, I thought they all did. Now, again, that was just my sense of it being in the room. Maybe you, having watched it on television, could tell me different. Well, I didn't see a killer line. Like, there was no, you had a choice, sir, Mulroney to Turner in, in 84. Even, even if we go back to four years ago, and, and it was obviously well-planted, but I thought it stung. I know I heard from friends who work with the Ontario Liberal Party who, who probably saw the train coming for the last election. But when Doug Ford asked Kathleen Wynne four years ago, when did you lose your way? I thought that's that's going to leave a mark for weeks on end to the point where Wynne basically conceded the election 10 days before. We didn't have that kind of moment last night, but I just thought great energy. And, and like you said, like I think there was there was merit in in everything all four candidates did last night for their supporters, for sure. Yeah, if there was a moment, and I remember uh, sort of sensing when it happened, I thought, oh, that seemed like a good shot. It's when Del Duca really went on a roll and went after Doug Ford and basically said, you're a failure as a premier. You've let me down. You've let my daughters down. Um, I mean, that seemed like a good shot, but it did not feel like, uh, a, you know, a fatal blow to Mr. Ford's chances. And you know what they say, Greg? I mean, the king 
is still the king until you kill the king. And I'm not sure anybody killed the king last night. So, hmm. But, you know, we'll follow the polls in the days ahead because it's not only the debate. And I would urge your listeners to remember this. It's not only those who saw the debate and will therefore take away an opinion on it. It's also how the radio announcers talk about it in the days mm-hmm. after the debate and how the clips are shown on television and so on and so forth. Because as many people who saw the debate will only see the coverage of the debate, and that will ha- help that group of people make up their mind. Steve Pakin's uh, kind enough to join us. He uh, co-hosted the debate with, uh, uh, co-moderated the debate with Althea Raj last night uh, that we all watched and we aired right here on uh, 640 Toronto. I, I also, f- I wonder if, if you had this vibe, if, if you know you're doing the debate, what, February, early March, would I say you had a bunch of weeks of, of prep for this? Uh, absolutely not. I think I found <laughs> out uh, two weeks ahead of time. No, no, the debate, the debate, every debate comes together very late in the campaign. And while the consortium may be negotiating with the parties over how it all comes together, I don't think the moderators get chosen until maybe two weeks ahead of time. So, but I prep for this the way I prep for every election campaign, which is to say, read the platforms, uh, interview uh, as many people as you can, get out on the hustings, go door to door with candidates, see what what's being brought up at the door. No different to prepare for a debate as I would for mm. any election that I'm covering. So I asked that because it felt like a very post-pandemic debate, that there's a lot of stuff in the rearview mirror. Andrea Horvath did make the point. There's people with COVID right now. It's something we need to be aware of. But but I, it took on a very different tone. If you said, what's the debate going to be like a year ago when we've got, my goodness, uh, the outdoors closed to all of us for five weeks, when many of us mm-hmm. had been vaccinated by then, or even January, Steve, with, uh, with Omicron spreading and schools being closed again. It just felt like the leaders and, and Stephen Del Duca, Andrea Horvath, they they don't want they, they didn't talk about any sort of restrictions now, any sort of safeguards, any sort of, uh, you know, guardrails to prevent COVID going on. It it felt a lot more. And maybe that felt made everybody reassuring. And maybe we'll have great voter numbers as a result. COVID felt like a thing of the past based on the debate. Did, did I did I get that right? Oh, well, if, if put it this way, I don't know whether you got it right or wrong, but I agree with you 100 100 percent. Uh, look, at these politicians, if there's one thing they know, it's that their parties do research on what the public's attitude about COVID-19 is right now. And we know from polls that the public has had it with COVID-19 mm-hmm. and they don't want to hear anything more about restrictions and they want to get on with life. So you certainly weren't about to hear anybody now talk about future restrictions or, or what we're going to have to do in that result. It did come up a little bit, COVID-19, in as much as we did a section on health care. And Mr. Ford's um, taking, you know, taking care of us during the course of the COVID uh, situation that did come up then. Uh, it came up during education as well when uh, a number of the opposition leaders uh, went after Mr. Ford on the issue of uh, handling classrooms and so on and so forth. But uh, no, everybody wants to move on from COVID, and that uh, that rang loud and true last night. I know. I know. Uh, you know, we got uh, we got moments where where you had to stop uh, Mr. Del Duca from uh, from making minor absurd. We also have this, and Steve, I'm going to play this at my dinner table tonight from Althea. Here it goes. Nobody can understand you when you're all talking at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and she's so right about that. And the funny thing is, I mean, you know, we we gave them a little warning ahead of time, right? I mean, in the in the introduction of the debate, I said if there's one thing I hear from people more than anything else is that they can't stand it when you all talk at once. So needless to say, what do they all do, Greg? Of course, they all talked at once at some point. Uh, I understand why. Look, their handlers are coaching them to just power through. And with the thinking being the loudest voice in the room will prevail. And so and I thought Mr. Del Duca was the guy more than all of the others who insisted on blasting past his time limits 
And when he was asked to stop talking, still kept talking anyway. His mic did have to be cut on one occasion. I was told in my ear that they'd cut his mic. Um, but he's just following his coaching. And I'll tell you, it is a fact. If they want to blow past you and they don't want to listen to you, there's precious little you can do other than cut the mics, which we did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't have a Chris Wallace-Donald Trump situation, so there is that. I never uh, got that bad, thank <laughs> And And uh, we should point out as well, for uh, Vice President, uh, Fly didn't land on anybody's head last night. We didn't have any Mike Pence <laughs> meme moments. Uh, it, all, it all went positively. And you and Althea did a great, great job. Appreciate you saying that. That's very kind of you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Not at all, Greg. You be well. We'll be watching tonight. Uh, TVO's The Agenda. It's on at 8 and 11 o'clock. So we talked about the uh, the flap, if you will, with this dress code blitz at uh, at a local high school in Ottawa. Let's look it up yesterday. Um, it's happened more in the states that uh, these have gone to legal means. Right now, the schools, I think the superintendent and the board know how wrong the school was. And they're kind of digging into who did what, when. But the students and the parents, I think, have have a real grievance here. Um, there were there have been male students. I'm looking at the story in Texas late fall of last year. Uh, seven students challenged legally uh, that school's dress code. They were suspended for long hair. Th- this seems to be a uh, a private school, but the guys grew their hair out and the school suspended them. School district says they are teaching hygiene, okay, and respect for authority. Uh, this is straight out of Cartman's book from uh, from South Park. And uh, in Florida, I see a headline uh, yesterday, Florida eighth grader suspended 10 days in dress code flap. One of the female teachers kicked a girl out of class, commented that she could see her bra strap underneath her tank top. Well, the girl went home, told the mom that. And uh, naturally, um, you know, a little bit of a legal brouhaha ensued. And, and that girl was back into class and that teacher was forced to apologize. So. Could this be uh, grounds for this here from what we see in Ottawa? Angela Chason is a litigation lawyer at Millard and Company, and she's kind enough to join Toronto today. Now, Angela, thanks for getting up early for us. We appreciate it. I'm always up early. Are you really? <laughs> like, how early is early? But uh, we'll, we'll take it. You know, I'm going to be on my second coffee soon, but uh, I'm, hopefully I'm coherent. I'm deep into mine. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, Ontario uh, leaders debate uh, was at 630 last night and not 1030 because I couldn't. Uh, I don't think I could watch it a third time. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put it that way. When you see After a bedtime. <laughs> when you see a case like this, um, does that does that sort of push up alarm bells and say, yeah, somebody's rights may have been violated here. Somebody's personal rights, somebody's rights, obviously, to not be suspended for for something they wear to school. You know, it's less for me about being suspended for what you wear to school. For me, this becomes a real issue of assault, sexual assault, human rights violations, uh, things of that nature. So certainly the dress codes are concerning, you know, at a certain point, put in a uniform or shut up about it. But at another point, this becomes a real sexual assault and assault issue. Well, that's what it seemed like to me when I see uh, we had one of the older brothers on who put a lot of the videotape out um, of of the two or three students that did get arrested Friday afternoon. And he noted that a friend of his sister's who goes to the school, he went there as well, is documenting a male teacher telling a girl to bend over so he can measure how short her shorts are with a ruler. I you cringe like it doesn't you don't have to be a dad. You don't have to even be a a man. You like you just cringe at something like that and think this is wrong on a ton of different levels, not just one or two. Well, I think it's telling that, you know, the fact scenario here reads more as a plot of a Pornhub video than an appropriate school policy. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) 
glad glad to be here. Uh, I'd also just point out that with respect to sexual impropriety, teachers have a higher obligation, not a lesser obligation than other adults because they're in that position of authority and power. Well, we could make the case also, couldn't we, that this is kids have a right to go to school. This is a uh, well, it may be a uh, uh, it's a separate school board. This is not a private business. I, I was sent. I used to wait tables. We weren't allowed to wear jeans. I showed up to wear jeans once. They said, no, 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 there's no jeans. Go home and put on proper pants. And they could say that to a man or a woman because they're a private business. You can't do that at a school with kids. Well, we're into a whole, you know, first year law lecture about the Constitution, the place of, of the Catholic school board that's been constitutionalized. So for me, that is a bit of a different issue. But of course, being told to put on proper pants is a lot different yeah. than being told to bend over and see if we can see your underwear. Yeah. I mean, are you expecting I, I, I feel like I'm reading the tea leaves here and you're expecting there may be parents uh, weighing options right now. Their kids may be. Uh, you know, I know it's an overused word, but their kids may be somewhat traumatized by this experience. I know I don't have a daughter. I have two sons. But if my daughter came home and said, this is what happened to me at school today from the male teacher. I mean, we get that instinctive reflex action as a parent to be furious about this beyond furious. Yeah, I would make two points. The first is that I don't think that traumatized is an overused word when it comes to assault and sexual assault by a person in a position of power and authority. And I'm not saying that's what happened here. I don't have mm -hmm. all the facts, but certainly I have some concerns. And the second thing is that uh, these girls have agency. It's not their parents necessarily who would be pursuing this matter legally. These girls have agency. And I think that they've proven that through the way that they've handled this issue. They can pursue legal recourse themselves, hopefully with their parents' support. But certainly it's what do these girls and young women want to have happen with their experience. Angela Chase sounds kind of to join us, litigation lawyer at Millard and Company. Have you had a, uh, you know, a, a similar scenario, maybe not something that's as descriptive that, that made as much media waves, but uh, somebody says, my, you know, my kid was sent home from this. My kid was made to feel objectified by a male teacher, female teacher, educator, any scenario like that? I will tell you that unfortunately part of my job is dealing with uh, these sorts of issues in school. And so are they, do you think they're happening more than they used to? No, I think that the awareness is more. And I yeah. think that people are less willing to put up with it, that, that teachers aren't necessarily the, you know, godlike creatures that they were when I was in school, for example. And so I think that this generation actually is extremely impressive for how they pursue issues of sexual harassment and assault, whether it's against the teacher or somebody else. I agree with you. I, th I think we're getting to those better places. You see a lot more controversy in the states and, and obviously with the Florida law about what are the conversations we can have. I, I know my recollection, even as a as a house league sports coach, when my kids were like five and six was a, a kid would fall down, be crying. And you were very conscious to make them feel better, but also conscious that I, I'm not sure if you can give a kid a hug. I'm not sure if you can help pick a, a kid up, yeah. a boy or a girl playing T-ball. Like, I, I think there's just a heightened awareness of on on perception not becoming judged as reality and teachers must be hyper aware of this at all level at all times now the other people that i have concerns about of course are the teachers themselves if they were ordered to do this forced to do this obviously we don't have all the facts right now so we can't draw any conclusions or determinations but my goodness 
Yeah, the, I would have some concerns with that if I was a teacher in a school board. Yeah, the story was exactly like that, and I think you raise an excellent point. Not just for not just for legal means, but a teacher may say, "I'm following the rules here. This came from the vice principal. This came from the principal. This came from a a department head, and uh, and and I'm you know I I don't have the seniority to say no to it, or I didn't feel like I did, whether it violated somebody's uh, somebody's you know well being or not." I expect that the union is really going to want to pay close Mm -hmm. attention to this one. But from a legal perspective, as lawyers, we always ask, okay, where does the buck stop? Yeah. Angela Chase on litigation lawyer at Millard and Company. Uh, Finish that second cup of coffee. Maybe we can chat again about uh, another important issue like this. I appreciate you coming on. Anytime. Angela Chase on uh, from Millard and Company. Um, Saturday was uh, a very difficult day. And I think we've talked about it. I think we're all in concert if you will, on this one, that Buffalo feels a lot more Canadian than um, than other cities do. And we've got a lot more uh, unique ties to it. Uh, Global television side sent our own Sean O'Shea uh, to Buffalo to cover some of the reaction after this monstrous uh, crime was committed um, by an 18 year old gunman. A lot of people have documented um, that this 18 year old wrote a manifesto and that he uh, echoed. There's a lot of cut and paste from the Christchurch shootings, and some of what we talked about yesterday was the responsibility of um, parents and keeping an eye, if you will, on young men and young white men specifically. And I'm here for that conversation. I I do see race. Some people say, I don't see it. I don't. To me, those are the same people that are very much... Um, People who are straight, like like straight men like me, who are like, I can't tell when other men are attractive or not. What do you? I can't really. You can't tell the difference between Brad Pitt and Nathan Lane. You can't tell the difference between those two. Of course you can. And we can look at documented uh, cases of violence via race, and we can see a lot of problematic things. This tremendously hateful um, crime that happened on Saturday from an 18-year-old that was radicalized online, seemingly at the beginning of the pandemic. We don't know what he was like at 15 or 16. We don't know what he was like at 10 or 11. Frankly, I'm Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. I don't care. I don't care. You did the crime. You'll do the time. I'm not interested in profligating your views and sharing them too frequently. If there was something, there was a Virginia tech shooter way, way, way back when I want to say in 2007 and he shot up the campus, not unlike uh, Mark LePan obviously did in 1989 with the Montreal massacre. Uh, But that, that person recorded a a manifesto and recorded a bunch of stuff. This is almost uh, YouTube's around then, but video is not as prominent. You couldn't watch video on your phone. You didn't see it everywhere. And the news networks had a big dilemma that night in 2007 as to whether or not to show this video. But I'd make the case evil is evil in anybody's name. Evil actions are evil actions and they deserve consequences and accountability. Okay, and so some elements of mainstream media are getting blamed for the role and the accountability of this 18 year old here. And I think that's I think that's a little too much. And yet at the same time. The, the T word's getting brought up a lot. The TC word, Tucker Carlson. He hosts a show on Fox News. It's a popular show. People watch this show. It's not for me. I understand a lot of it is shtick, 
I know shtick when I see it, that's for sure. I've been around the industry long enough. I know how young I sound, but I've been around this industry long enough to see hucksters and to see shtick and to see that person probably doesn't fully engage with all these beliefs, but they know there's a good buck to be made from it. I've seen it in news, sports, entertainment. I've seen it. Here's a uh, collaboration, if you will, a collage, a medley of Tucker Carlson talking about immigration policy and white replacement theory. Demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions. Our leaders have no right to encourage foreigners to move to this country in order to change election results. Abrupt change causes social chaos, always. What will the consequences of that change, of that revolution be? In your bones, you know the answer. It's terrifying. And it doesn't have to happen. You cannot overstate the scale of demographic change underway right now in the United States. It's a direct assault on our democracy. They don't even really care about your vote anymore. Their goal is to make you irrelevant. You're just an American citizen, shut up and obey. They know that calling you a racist is the fastest way to make you obey. Listen, doesn't take much time to cut and paste uh, regarding Tucker Carlson. It wouldn't take much time to cut and paste uh, some blame and shame from Joy Reid on MSNBC, although she would be deemed as far less harmful and far less likely to profligate a mass shooting as Tucker Carlson. And that that sentence alone, I would agree with. I talked about young boys yesterday, and I'll make the point again. Seventy percent of suicides are white men. Somehow, some way they're struggling. They're looking. They don't feel they belong. We got to hold individuals accountable for action. These aren't excuses. These are explanations. But guess what? White men are the least empathetic demographic on the planet by most people. And they know it. We know it. We often don't get to complain. And I'm not saying we should. And I'm not saying we should change that. But we got to hold maniacs accountable for their action and still say, let's dig into this somehow and make sure there's one less maniac or several less potential radicalized maniacs who would even write something terrible, let alone do something terrible. It is worth doing. I'm going to follow up on that comment in a second. Here first is Victor Blackwell on CNN. He was sent to cover this uh, reaction to the Buffalo mass shooting, and he had an understandable, as understandably visceral reaction to having to do this for the umpteenth time in his mind. I've done 15 of these, at least the ones I could count. And we keep having the conversation about Democrats will say guns, Republicans will say mental health, and nothing will change. And I'll probably do another one this year. Family after family, having nowhere to go with their grief. We'll get into a political conversation later, but is this the way we're supposed to live? Are we destined to just keep doing this city after city? Have we just resigned that this is what we are going to be? I'm going to give it back to you. It's terrible. I went to Columbine. I will never forget it. I've been to Denver four or five times for work, and I went to uh, Denver, I should say, about a week and a half after the Columbine shootings. Things had just opened up. Stores had gotten back to normal. Uh, I was covering a, a Red Wings Avalanche playoff series in 1989, those great games between those two teams, and you felt it. You could feel it. You could see it. It was heavy. The air was heavy, and I couldn't even, not to, you know, it's not about me, but I couldn't enjoy the idea of being somewhere. It, it was on your mind constantly. 
constantly and, and regularly in the news. And we thought that was unique. And Columbine was anything but unique. If anything, it started a trend nationwide in America of this. And I'll go back to the young men thing quickly before I, I play you some audio from uh, the former police chief of Milwaukee here that I think is important to add to context here. Yeah, important to watch what young boys are doing online. I have two young boys. They're online constantly. And there are a lot of people worried about recruitment. And there's a lot of people worried about being radicalized. A lot of people worried about playing, you know, shoot em up video games. Listen, <laughs> we should be relieved if they're doing what I was probably doing at 17 or 18, thinking when's the next time I get to see nudity and when's the next time I can hear, you know, controversial song lyrics and not being uh, online and not playing violent video games. But let's get real here. The vast majority of kids doing this aren't going to be the Buffalo shooter. The vast majority of kids doing this are good kids. So what do we want in terms of having these conversations of reducing long-term harm? How do we get that 70% number down of suicides being white men? How do we get the number up of 40.5% of people at universities now being men in general? Don't we want it closer to 50-50 than 60-40? So how do we get there? I get it. Men had what they wanted, anytime they wanted, wherever they wanted for the longest period of time. I'm not making excuses, and I'm not saying we ever should go back there. I don't feel that way. I'm, I was raised by a really strong mother. I have two strong sisters. I have a strong wife. I work with strong women. So I don't want that. But I do think we got to start asking real questions about where we go with some of these scenarios. The former Milwaukee police chief is Edward Flynn. He made the point Milwaukee is a very violent city. They haven't been able to stop this violence. And it reminded me a little bit of our gunplay here in Toronto because we have it and we're well aware of this. Let me point you to a CBC headline from January 16th of this year. Black communities plagued by high numbers of homicides, low support for loved ones, data shows. Okay, so those are data, not feelings. I heard a lot of people saying yesterday, and understand in the immediacy of the trauma of Buffalo, people are thinking, "Is it? I'm black. Is it safe for me to go here? Is it safe for me to go there? How can I do this? How can I do that? I can't imagine what that feels like. Nobody targets me. Nobody makes me feel, I suppose, lesser than for the color of my skin. It's nothing I have to deal with. And I, I don't know, even know what to say about that. But I want a seat at the table to help us through some of this here. I want a seat at the table to make life better, to live in Toronto, to make people feel safer, but also to reduce some of this crime. I mean, we're talking about data, okay? Not I'm a big data. You saw this through COVID with me. I'd rather talk about data than feelings. Predominantly black neighborhoods in Toronto are disproportionately impacted by homicides. We have a lot of black men killing a lot of black men in these black neighborhoods. That's the data I'm reading from the article. And Edward Flynn used to be Milwaukee police chief, and he made this point after a grievous shooting, which left a five-year-old girl. He was counseling a five-year-old girl about an hour before this who lost her father in a shooting. And you can hear the emotion in his voice. The greatest racial disparity in the city of Milwaukee is getting shot and killed. Hello. 80% of my homicide victims every year are African-American. 80% of our aggravated assault victims are African-American. 80% of our shooting victims who survived their shooting are African-American. Now, they know all about the last three people that have been killed by the Milwaukee Police Department over the course of the last several years. There's not one of them 
can name last, one of the last three homicide victims we've had in this city. Now, there's room for everybody to participate in fixing this police department, and I'm not pretending we're without sin. But this community's at risk, all right. And it's not because men and women in blue risk their lives protecting it. It's at risk because we have large numbers of high-capacity, quality firearms in the hands of remorseless criminals who don't care who they shoot. Sound like Toronto? We just had a Leafs hockey superstar carjacked by three men with weapons who tossed him out of his car, tossed his cell phone off the Gardner Expressway, and were just like, huh, stuff happens. Well, stuff shouldn't happen. Let me give you the headline from Milwaukee from Friday night. Milwaukee officials on Saturday enacted a curfew for young people and added extra patrols after 21 people were injured in three separate downtown shootings near an entertainment district where thousands gathered for an NBA game. Let me make that clear. 21 people in three separate downtown shootings. So the Buffalo situation deserves its attention. It deserves its prominence. It's horrific. It's been on my mind every hour of every day since Saturday. Okay, it's terrible. I, my sister lives in upstate New York. It's an awful situation. And I've talked about it with black people, white people, Latino people, Asian people. I've talked with all my friends about this. And we all feel that same way. But when I lay that out there about Milwaukee, when I lay that out there about our own crime stats, We've got to take a macro picture about how to fix a lot of this stuff because the buffaloes are going to keep happening. But this other stuff that doesn't get the same attention is happening just as much. I'll redo the headline again. Black communities plagued by high numbers of homicides, low support for loved ones, data shows. So that's not a criticism of these communities. That's saying we have to find a way to make these communities safer for little boys and girls to grow up in so they feel more safe than their parents did, than their older brothers and sisters did. I don't have all the answers, but I know we got to start asking the questions. We've got um, an unbelievable story. Um, look, we're talking, uh, unfortunately, a lot about uh, violent crime. And when it happens to somebody that's really well known, maybe it alerts us uh, a little bit more and a little more of a, of a surge of energy goes through and says this, this is happening more, far more than it possibly should. Uh, but it appears Mitch Marner is the victim of a carjacking in Etobicoke over the weekend. We've got our own Marianne Demain on the chase for this story uh, this morning. We just, Marianne, we just sort of got wind of this. Um, I, for, I didn't find out till after the debate was over last night around uh, 8.30 or so, uh, but this happened last evening around 7.45 or so uh, at the Queensway in Islington is where I have the address. We're, just, we're, we're still getting details about it, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. We're hoping to get a lot more details confirmed from Toronto police as well. But what we do know is that, yes, it happened at 745 last night at the Cineplex Cinemas on Islington. It's the one that you can see uh, at Islington and Queensway in the city's west end. Uh, apparently, this black Range Rover, which is owned by Mitch Marner, was here at the theater. It was approached by three suspects, two who were armed with guns, another that was armed with a knife. And that is when this uh, armed carjacking took place. Um, at this point, police have not confirmed to us that Mitch Marner was in the vehicle. We know that there are several reports that have confirmed that, but we're still working to confirm that mm -hmm. detail. But we do know that a uh, male driver of the vehicle did go to 22 Division to report this incident. No one was injured. But uh, yeah, you know, this is just a really shocking incident when you hear uh, that the victim is someone who's so, potential victim is someone who's so wide uh uh, known in the, the city and beyond. Um, but we know that this is happening to residents, not just here in the city, but also all across the GTA. We know that uh, police have been cracking down on these high-end carjacking rings. Um, just a few weeks ago, police actually announced arrests in something called Project Taiga. And that was also a 
high-end carjacking ring. Uh, they were alleging that the suspects were planning to sell the vehicles for profit. Um, York mm-hmm. Region also released some shocking video yesterday um, of showing the same kind of thing, armed and, and in some cases violent carjackings happening in their region. So for whatever reason, this is on the rise. And now we're hearing that Mitch Marner's vehicle, the latest uh, to be stolen. Yeah. And, and I, I was going to mention that York Regional Police video. It's um, it, it's a bunch of different incidents. It's 77 seconds long. I'm looking at it right now. It's got around 30,000 views, Marianne. And it's it, it this could happen at, at an intersection where you're stopped. Uh, there's cars that are ramming into other cars and then other vehicles being apprehended. And then I don't want to say it's even more frightening than this, but the idea of coming home to your own driveway and having people follow you into that Mm. driveway, take your car and back right out and they're gone. So A, they know where you live and B, they've got your vehicle. Oh, yeah. And police were also saying, Toronto police, that is, were saying that in some cases, the suspects are monitoring the highways. And once they see Mm -hmm. a vehicle that they like, they'll then follow that vehicle. Of course, they're targeting high-end vehicles. In some cases, though, if they attempt to take a high-end vehicle and they're unsuccessful, sometimes they'll just go for the next thing that's available. And sometimes it's not always the drivers of high-end vehicles who are targeted. But some of these instances are violent. We know last night, as I mentioned, they were armed with guns. You just never know what's going to happen. In this particular case, the vehicle was taken without any incident. Uh, there was no struggle for the vehicle. The vehicle was just handed over to the suspect. So no one was injured. But, um, you know, hopefully... Mm. It remains this way and any potential future incidents um, don't end in someone being seriously injured or worse. I should also mention that this is actually the second time in a matter of days in this West End neighborhood where there was, um, well, in this particular case, an attempted carjacking. It was on Saturday when suspects approached a woman and tried to take her vehicle, but they were unsuccessful. And then this happened last night. So Toronto police are going to be really busy. They're appealing for witnesses. No mm. real suspect description at this point. But um, the fact that uh, this connection to uh, Mitch Marner, it, it's really got people talking. Yeah, it has. Um, and and we know how the media world works. I'm sure there are people saying it shouldn't take a famous person's car getting stolen and, and having him potentially removed from the car. But this is how it happens. And and this is why maybe there, there can be more of a, of a conversation about it and a lot more awareness uh, about it because it's it's clearly and and Marianne you make the point these aren't just guys out for a joy ride these aren't guys that are looking to use the vehicle for their own purposes it's not not unlike what happened to Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star gets his car stolen from his own driveway and a day and a half later it's it's tracked to a boat that's already headed overseas mm-hmm. yeah these uh, are are part of a larger ring in many cases whether that's the case in this particular instance uh, police haven't confirmed mm-hmm. but they've definitely been investigating these high end car theft rings where they're specifically targeting these high-end vehicles with the purpose of selling them for profit. Marianne Demain joining us on Toronto Today. We'll get more, uh, I know, later today as uh, details filter in from this incident uh, just after dinner time last night. Marianne, thanks for this. All right, thanks. Marianne Demain uh, joining us on uh, Toronto Today. We were talking about carjacking. Um, Dave just led the newscast with Mitch Marner's car being stolen last night at 745 seemingly with him and a friend in it. Let me give you some of these numbers from the United States. You might say, Brady, it's the U.S. That's so different. Is it? It's a big city. We've got crime in Toronto we'd like to minimize. Number of carjackings quadrupled in New York City. uh, Quadrupled in New York City over the last four years. City recorded more than 500 carjackings in 2021. Uh, It was 112 in 2018, 132 in 2019. Carjackings in Philadelphia have quadrupled between 2015 and 21. In New Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana, 
uh, the French Quarter and all that. There were 281 carjackings in 2021, up from 105 in 2018. These are the ones we know about. And Chicago loves a good carjack. More than 1,800 in the Windy City, uh, the most of any large city. Uh, Chicago's tally the most on record over the last 21 years. Uh, Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. It's I've never thought about it. It's never occurred to me. I've been lost. I've been at you know streetlights in this neighborhood and that neighborhood. I think you, you you're you're constantly aware, but it never occurs to me it'll happen. And maybe most people aren't you know aren't thinking of it on a regular basis. You lock your car in your driveway. You lock your house when you go inside. But I don't think about being carjacked. And some of these numbers <laughs> are really concerning. Maybe that has a lot to do with the types of cars that we drive. I wondered right? about that, that. Yeah. I mean, if I had a, I mean, I got my four kids. I'm fine. No one's taking my minivan. No one wants that, that, that big ship that I drive. But I mean, if you were in a nice car, I would be concerned about that. And, and how scary must that have been for him last night for Mitch Marner? I mean, that's, and he just, he got out. The guy said, get out. I want your car. And he said, okay. And he just, he complied. He didn't argue, didn't fight back. I think he knew the gravity of the situation. Um, and it's terrifying. And the one report is that his phone was in there. So he got out without his phone. They noticed the phone and didn't want the car tracked. So they literally threw it out on the Gardner <sighs> Expressway out of a, the moving car um, on the window. Uh, out of the window onto, onto either the highway or over the overpass, uh, wherever they were at the, at the time. And then now it's on a ship somewhere. Right, it must be. I mean, it's <laughs> it's see, headed that is, way. It's in it's in Nova Scotia, PEI. It's headed east, is I think the best idea. Uh, yeah. Really? So it doesn't go from a port in Toronto. Maybe it does. Maybe it does too. I mean, Kevin Donovan had I the find, famous yes. story, right, where his yes. he had a Highlander SUV, which isn't that's a nice car. Like I, I have a Hyundai Santa Fe. They're they're probably comparable. Some car guy will go, no, they're not, because there's a limited slip differential and the and the zero to sixty. Um, but someone used a high tech device to unlock the door. 302 in the morning. His car is locked. And thieves now have the tech to uh, get into your car without a break-in, without, you know, jimmying the locks or smashing a window. And uh, his car disappeared at 302 a.m., gone, gone, and on a boat two, uh, two days later. On a boat two days That's later. nuts how quickly it happens. And it's, you don't expect to get it back. I mean, it's just, in, in my, I live in a neighborhood where there are a lot of High-end homes mixed with, you know, older, older bungalows. So we have different types of of incomes, of cars, and it happens all, car thefts from the driveways happen all the time in my neighborhood, and it's always one type of car. It's the same car that Mitch Marner was driving, a Range Rover, always. They really do. They, you, yeah. you, they, so this happens to your neighbors out of the driveway a fair bit? All the time. All the time. Not just so, break-ins, but thefts. Not just, not just somebody going, oh, no, no, I wonder if something's it. in the car. If it's a Lexus or a Range Rover, for some reason, those two cars, if it's on the driveway, it's going to be gone. So, like, I'm reading this. I'm backtracking on this story that we gave you all those stats ahead of time for, uh, you know, the numbers quadrupling in U.S. cities over the span of two or three years. But it's documented in the Kevin Donovan story. Um, and by the way, his car went from Toronto to the port of Halifax, and that container was bound for the United Arab Emirates. So they'll get really? it to the Middle East and they'll sell and they'll sell it there. But I'm sure there's a cash transaction for whoever the thieves are to get the car to the port of Halifax. Like I, I said to Dave earlier, I'm like, who would rob a bank? Who would rob a store when this is, to be honest, if you're a criminal, it just seems like a lot easier scenario. But you got to disappear <laughs> fast in that car, clearly. But it's the confrontation. 
Like Mitch Marner had a confrontation last night. If you're taking it off of someone's driveway, there's no confrontation. You just need some high tech, whatever. You know, that device that just that opens the doors for you. They have those now. I'd almost feel more violated, though. Would you almost feel more violated knowing somebody knows where you live? They came to your driveway. Yeah, a, I would. Versus pointing a gun at you and telling you to get out of your car we, no way, and leaving you on the side of the road? Absolutely. I take my car. I don't want to see what you look like. Absolutely. No. We, I don't want a gun pointed at me. I don't either, but I do want, but, but uh, they, at the minimum, they don't know where I live. It may not have even been, there may not have been a gun involved with the Marner situation. Maybe there's, I, uh, some of the video that York Police put out in this uh, 70 second clip on their Twitter account just showed people like getting pulled out of cars. And like you're gone. It's no, a little it like a movie. Two, it was uh, it was two handguns and a knife. Oh, it was okay. Yes, it okay. was it happened at seven forty six p.m. last night at Queensway and Islington Avenue, mm. and it was a black his black Range Rover. Um, we'll we'll leave more time for this at the end of the show. I know we want to talk about this sentence yesterday um, for Brady Robertson. I remember this happening on a Friday, and. You, you know, it's a, it's hard for you and me, and it's hard for our listeners. Uh, this beautiful family uh, wiped out after their SUV was struck. This was June 18th of 2020, so it's almost two full years ago. And they finally got around to sentencing a 21-year-old who was 19 at the time. Brady Robertson gets a 17-year sentence uh, and a driving ban for 20 years. I will compare this briefly to the Marco Mozo situation. He was sentenced to 10 years but he's out on full parole after yeah. five. Living and his best life. Living his best life. And yeah. remember, he came back on a private plane. Um, you know, from got his bachelor in, party. From, from his, his bachelor, bachelor party. party. You, you got it. Got in his fancy sports car. Pound, you know, pounded through a red light. He's way drunk. Um, Robertson is not quite as uh, inebriated, but based on the toxicology, but the guy had 15 driving infractions in two and a half years. The car had no plates. The license should have been suspended. And, uh, it's, uh, I, maybe this is like Sheba. I was, I was relieved that the sentence was 17 years. And at the same time, stressed for the families that there's just going to be a, after four or five years, we'll just have this parole hearing year after year after year. And that's all you hear victims say is I, I, I think about it the morning I get up. And I hope that they don't let him out. And I hope that they keep him in. And this could be a murderer, a rapist, or in a situation like this, a Brady Robertson who who destroyed this 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 these four people. I don't think it's enough. I mean, you feel relieved. I don't feel relieved. Seventeen years for for killing four people for those three young girls. Uh, no, I don't think it's enough. And just and. The, so the legal limit uh, for cannabis while driving is five nanograms in your blood. Mm-hmm. He, Robertson tested at 40. Yeah. And this wasn't the first time. He had several infractions two days before that. Like you just said, he was um, he'd slammed into a, uh, a mailbox and people thought that would be a wake up call for him. But no, it t- uh, 17 years is not enough. Uh, that whole family has been destroyed. That husband, that father of those three kids, just the feeling he has... Put yourself in his shoes when he opens his eyes every morning. Every single thing has been taken from him. And you're right. And now for the next few years, he's going to be wondering, when is this guy getting out of jail? 
His quote, um, I wanted to end my life countless times, but that would be a coward way to go. I want to pay for what I did. I want to serve my time. This family deserves justice. And I'll read that the judge acknowledged Robertson lived a difficult life marred by drug use and abuse. Again, I'm Tommy Lee Jones in the fugitive. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care, care either. I don't care. You got to be accountable for your actions. Yes. You can rage out, uh, punch a wall. You can, uh, you know, go to a gun range. Do whatever you need to do. Go to go, go pump some iron. Oh, you can't do what range. you can't do no. what he did. You can't do what he did and not pay a, a price for accountability. I'm a big believer. Be accountable for your actions. And one hundred. I don't care how old you are. I don't care your life circumstances to go and do something like that. And people tried to stop that. His vehicle. Before he crashed yes, they into did. her, he was in Brampton and he'd veered off to the side onto a curb near a bus stop. And those there were a couple of people that came running towards the car trying to get him out and, and trying to help him or, you know, help people around him and just stop the car. And he just sped off. And then minutes later, he crashed into her car, her van. The victim, uh, the victim statement. Um, this this is uh, we'll save the Catherine McDonald clip for, for 845, but I do want to get to it. But the, the statement from um, the, the husband's sister, the father and the husband He'll never be who he was. And that that line leaped off the page to me last night because I'm thinking, you know, we'll all we'll all lose our parents. We'll lose friends. We hope we don't we, we, we hope we don't lose a partner. But you hope to grieve and be able to take steps forward again when the, when when death happens to you. But when I read the sentence, he'll never be who he was. I, I can't imagine being who I am losing one family yes. member, not four, not four, yes. just one. Yes. Yes, all in one day. And sure, this is one of the harshest jail sentences anywhere in Canada for this specific type of crime, but I still think it's not enough. And yes, we saw what happened with Marco Muzzo. We saw how he's walking free. He, he His main concern seemingly when he was in court was because he would always look over at his fiance whenever his uh, his the date was the trial date was extended. Yeah. He was going to miss his wedding. He was yeah. going to miss his wedding date. Uh, and now he's out. And he is living his best life mm. with her, I, from my understanding. And there's a Jennifer Neville Lake's family will never recover. And this father and husband, he will never recover from this. Never, never. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Don't forget, live show tomorrow. You can hear us on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com.